to continue with our theme of children. Again, as we said, we know that uh, our children are not perfect. We know that uh, our children will do things wrong to others and to their own siblings. And we want them to reflect the hearts and the character of God, right? We want them to, to follow in the ways of God. And, and when they do something wrong and they sin, especially against another person, we, we desire to teach our children uh, about forgiveness and about restoration. And we want them to learn to make amends and to say, I'm sorry, and to seek that out, right? We want them to, to be humble about it. And, and as parents, I think that's a really appropriate response, right? That is what we should do. We should train our children to learn how to do that. And so when they do something, we get our kids and we go, hey, you, you need to say that you're sorry. And so we put our children in front of someone else and we go, go ahead, say it, say it. And what do they do? They go, I'm sorry, right? And, and we know it's a very half-hearted attitude. And so what do we do as parents? We go, no, do it again and say it this time like you mean it. Right now, I understand what is the heart behind that comment, right? It's a comment that says, I want you to understand who God is and how God reconciled with you and, and how God loved you and how we want you to understand the depravity of your soul and that you would make right with someone else. I don't think that's a bad thing when we say it. But sometimes when we say it, if we really think about what we're communicating is, say it like you mean it, really what we're saying is, just be a really good actor so I believe you, right? And what we have failed to do is actually connect the heart of that child to God's heart. And so Jeremiah is going to express the same idea to God's people. The prophet Jeremiah uh, is going to talk about this idea that it's not just about accomplishing something. It's not about a set of laws on stone, but it's what is in our hearts that matters the most. That again, we would recognize who God is and who we are in relation to God. And so if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we're gonna do, a, again, a, a good track through that full book there. Um, but again, as Jeremiah speaks, he's gonna say something very drastic. He's gonna let his people know that unless there is a surgery of our soul and our hearts, we will never be able to love God the way that we should. And so this is what Jeremiah is going to communicate. Now, we've been going through the book of the prophets again. God's people have just been on a downward slope towards evil and destruction. God has placed all different kinds of leaders to guide them, but they fail to heed those warnings. And so the prophets come on the scene, again, bringing words of judgment, but offering hope that there's a chance for repentance if they are willing to seek it. And so like many of the other prophets, Jeremiah is going to be another one. Now, Jeremiah is going to speak during the last four kings of Judah. So again, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been conquered by the Assyrians. And Jeremiah shows up on the scene and he says, look, we're at the tail end of this. Okay? If you guys do not get your act together, the Babylonians are going to come in and they are going to conquer you. But there is a chance that you can turn and kind of right the ship if you're willing to just humble yourselves before God. 
But like many of the other prophets, uh, Jeremiah is not going to be liked. He's going to be plotted against. And he's actually going to be carried off into Egypt before the final destruction of God's people. So in the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah in chapter 1, God speaks to him and says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. He says, Jeremiah, when, when you were just a thought in your parents' mind, when you were inside your mother's womb, I had already set you apart to speak to my people. This is what I'm raising you up for. And what message is he going to speak? He says, this is what you are to tell them. And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said, I have put my, my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to plant and build. Jeremiah, you're going to bring my words that are going to let nations know that they are going to rise and fall. Okay? You're going to bring words of judgment against those that have disobeyed and rebelled, but also to bring words of comfort to my people that I will again one day raise them up. And so as he continues through, this, through the book of Jeremiah, he begins to lay out specifically what is it that God's people have done? Where have they gone wrong? In Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dung their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So he says, look, there's two very basic things. One They've forsaken the living God, a living stream, right, that God would just put in the barren wilderness, just streams of water that would just run out of God's own blessing as the rains would come down and, and forge a path through the lands. He says, that's what I offered you. I gave you every blessing. But instead, what you wanted to do was build your own cisterns. These were giant kind of just man-made wells to collect rainwater. He said, you, you cast me aside and said, God, we don't want your provision. We're going to go do it on our own accord. We are going to go out and collect our own goodness. And the problem is with your cisterns, though, Jeremiah says, he says, they're broken. And they just keep leaking water and leaking water. But yet you refuse to come to me. You continue to pursue your own desires apart from me. So God says, you've, you've forsaken me. You've turned your backs on me. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 6, he says, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all of this, she would turn to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her idolatries. Yet I see that her unfaithful sister Judah has no fear. She went out and committed adultery because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. And in spite of all of this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart but only in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous 
than unfaithful Judah. So he says, look, the kingdom was split. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, every king was awful. There wasn't an ounce of goodness in the northern kingdom. And they got conquered right away by the Assyrians. And he says, that was supposed to be a warning to the southern kingdom. Guys, didn't you see what happened? Didn't you see how they, they, they made these idols and they, they prostrated themselves to it and they bowed down and they worshipped? He says, guys, this should have been a lesson to you because I destroyed them because of that. And yet you persist in doing the same thing. Quite frankly, you are worse than they are. You know, it's like the kid at school when I used to teach all the time. You know, one kid would do something wrong and I'd, I'd take him outside and, and I'd say, listen, you can't do this. You're going to get in trouble. I'm going to call your parents, whatever it is. And I bring him back in. And then the moment I bring the kid back in, some other kid literally does the same exact thing. And I go, didn't you just see what happened to this kid? Like, how foolish can you be? And that's what Jeremiah is saying to his people. I'm giving you every warning possible, and yet you just keep making the same foolish mistakes. But it's not all gloom and doom. Jeremiah wants to offer a little bit of hope here. So in chapter 7, he says this. He tells Jeremiah, Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. He says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. He says, guys, there's a chance. You can easily write the ship. Stop the idolatry. Stop the false worship. Stop the impression. Stop the injustice. Stop taking advantage of people. Love people the way that I am calling you, and I'll let you stay here. I will, I will put off the wrath of the Babylonians if you're just willing to reform and change your ways. But despite this, despite this opportunity, they are unwilling to change. They're unwilling to humble and, for, and ask for forgiveness. And Jeremiah says, you know what it is? This is the problem. See, the, the problem is your heart. Your heart is so vile. You just don't know how to do it. And he says this in chapter 17. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. See, the, the human heart is so full of sin, it is only bent on evil and wickedness. That's, that's all it craves in life. It, it desires to be greedy. It desires to abuse. It desires to oppress. Quite frankly, the heart is so evil that if it doesn't get what it wants, it will murder for any disregard of human life. It doesn't 
care. And so God says, I'm going to reward you based upon that heart. And so he takes our heart and he puts it under a microscope. And he pokes it and he prods it and he analyzes it. And when he's all done, he, he comes to the conclusion, he comes to the diagnosis and he says, this heart is evil and this is what it deserves. It deserves death. It doesn't have the right to live. It shouldn't live because of how awful we are. And, and Jeremiah says it's beyond cure. Right? I, I just can't go down to the local pharmacy and grab some liquid meds and drink it down and be healed. Jeremiah is like, guys, there's, there's nothing we can do. You are a walking death sentence. That's what you are. So if that's the case, though, if our hearts are so ridden with filth and sin and disease, why does, why does God just not wipe us out? Why, why does God just not look at this, this earth, this giant planet of horrible people and just kick it into the far reaches of galaxy where we either freeze to death or we burn up, depending upon which way God decides to kick us? Because God's heart is not like ours. And God's heart is one of compassion. And God says, I know what your heart deserves, but that's not what I want for my children. What I want is to be in relationship with you. And I want to give you every chance I can to make that happen. God desires to bless us. God desires to pour out his love on us. So he says, Judah, repent and turn back. But how are they supposed to do it when that's not what the heart wants? It doesn't want to seek God. So in Jeremiah chapter 25, he continues. And he says to the people, he said, But you didn't listen to me, declares the Lord. You have provoked me with your hands that you have made and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the people of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and all of the surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and the nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So I gave you a chance and you refused. And so I'm sending the Babylonians and they will destroy this place. They will carry you off into exile and captivity and you will serve out a punishment of 70 years. By the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back into the land that I've promised you. Because remember, I made a promise. I made a promise in the garden. I made a promise to Abraham. And I made a promise to his children. And I made a promise to David. And I'm not going to go back on that promise. 
I made a promise that I would be your God. And that's what I'm going to be. And so after I punish you and it breaks my heart, I'm going to bring you back. And there's going to come a day where he says, I will rule this land in justice and righteousness, and you will call me your God. Jeremiah actually says this. He, he says this twice. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Well, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Remember the branch from Isaiah last week? Remember he kept talking about how out of the stump the branch was going to come? He says that promise is still in effect. That's not null and void. That branch is still on its way. And he's going to be the God of righteousness and he was going to rule. But see, when he comes, what's the problem going to be? Your hearts are going to fight against him. Your hearts are going to say, we don't want him as our righteous Lord. So Jeremiah says, we need to fix the problem. And that's your heart. So he talks about this in Jeremiah 31. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to make a new promise. I'm going to make a new set of rules here. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to change those laws of Moses. Remember when Moses went up onto the mountaintop and, and I etched into stone the laws and he brought them down and said, these are the laws that you're supposed to follow. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Remember all of those laws? He said, I'm going to change that. Because, see, those laws were designed for you to follow. They, they were designed for you to follow so that you would stand apart from the other nations. That other nations would look at how you lived and go, their God must be greater than our God. Their God must be the only God and we want their God. That's what that was designed to do. But in that set of laws... He said that there would be blessings, but there would be curses if you failed to follow them. And he said, if you broke those laws, there had to be a way for atonement to cover over your violation. Because when you violate my laws, I've already told you there has to be death. And so in the laws, I, I made a, a stipulation that if you brought animals and, and you, you presented them a certain way at a certain time, I would forgive the sins that you did. And by the shedding of the blood of those animals, I would, I would offer that forgiveness. But see, here was the problem. That's not, that was never going to work. 
the right way. See, those laws are only external. They never addressed what was going on in here, and that's what needs to be fixed. So he says, I gotta take care of the heart, and I have to make that sense of righteousness go from just here to in here, and more importantly, to in here. And so this passage in Jeremiah 31 is the very same passage that the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 8. In chapter 8, he quotes Jeremiah. He says, But God, God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. And after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man, uh, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So the, the entire book of Hebrews is all about the su superiority of Christ. It's all about how God is greater and better than anything in Jewish history or ritual or culture. Christ trumps all of that. And everything that was in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews is trying to get them to understand that these were constant breadcrumbs pointing you to say, I'm leading you to the Savior. I'm leading you to the Savior. So when he shows up, you will know exactly who it is, and that is Jesus Christ. And he goes on in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in the first room there was a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. And this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room of the most, most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. And the ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded in stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself, and for sins the people had committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and very ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. 
He says, look, I, I laid out what I wanted you to do. I laid out the temple and how it was supposed to be set up. And I laid out the rules and the priest and what they were supposed to wear and how they were supposed to be a sacrifice and how they were supposed to sacrifice the animals. But all of this was just external. It's just an illustration until this time had come. Because see, the Mosaic Covenant, right, the, the laws that God put before Moses was, was meant to be one of bondage, redemption from bondage and freedom to worship God. It, it was designed to be a covenant based on that condition where, again, when they would follow God, that there would be joy and blessing that was anchored in worshiping God alone. That our obedience to God's laws was a response because of understanding the salvation that was offered to us. And so God said, follow these laws, love me, trust me. But God said, I know you're going to violate them, so I'm going to set up the sacrificial system. So that way there can again be reconciliation between you and I. There could be a restoration between you and I. But look, that, that sacrificial system was not supposed to be permanent. It wasn't a long-term solution. Quite frankly, it didn't make any sense because to offer an animal in exchange for a human, I would take that deal any day. And God said, it's not equatable. We just can't keep doing this. I just can't keep having you go out and sacrifice animal after animal after animal. This was never going to suffice in the, in the mind of God. And he says, part of the problem is, is because your heart's would never be with the sacrifice. See, you could go out and make a sacrifice and go, here you go, I brought my lamb. Go ahead, priest, take care of it. I'm good. And God would see right through that and see that your heart never cared about finding repentance. Sure, you made a public apology, but there was no humility behind it. And quite frankly, that's what many of the prophets point out. That God doesn't want your meaningless sacrifices. God doesn't want your offerings because they're fake and they're hollow and they're shallow and they mean nothing to me. Because it's all just external. Because your heart doesn't actually care. And that's what Jeremiah says. Just to hop back to Jeremiah chapter 7 really quick. Verses 22, he says, For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, and I spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all of the ways I command you that it may go well. But you didn't listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time of your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I have sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. Guys, our hearts are so bad that we don't move forward. We go backwards. 
We are a stiff-necked, stubborn donkey that refuses to move. And I'm sure all of you have experienced that in your relationships with your spouse, with your parents, with your children, where the heart just says, I refuse to budge an inch. And so that has to change. Jeremiah says there has to be a new heart for this to work. And so as we go further into the book of Hebrews, again, hopping back, Hebrews back in chapter 9. He said, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our conscience from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance that now he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. Remember all of those rules about how you were supposed to sacrifice and when and who was going to do it and what was going to happen. I'm going to take all of those rules and I'm going to take all of those sacrifices and I'm going to combine it into one singular final sacrifice in the personhood of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be done with this. And you will be done with it. So instead of following a law set on stone, that law is now going to show up in your hearts. And further in Hebrews chapter 9, going into chapter 10, he says, Just as one man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those that are waiting. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near. If it could, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder because it is impossible for bull, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came to sacrifice and offer and an offering you did not desire, but a body that he prepared with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then he said, here I am. It is written about me on the scroll that I have come to do your will. He said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you didn't desire and you were not pleased, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and that by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice by the body, Jesus Christ, once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands, performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he's been made perfect, forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this, and he says, this is the covenant I will make with them, that after that time I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, and where we have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Christ died once. The sacrifices were a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. The perfect and final sacrifice. And he says, because I have died, the old covenant is gone, and the new covenant has come in my body. And I will wash away those sins. And so how does that happen? How does God deal with it? Do you remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a man of the scriptures, and he was supposed to understand all of this, but he was clueless. He didn't get it. And so Jesus says, Nicodemus, let me explain to you how the old and the new covenant works. So in John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He says, you got to be me made new. you got to have new life. And I'm not talking about some sense of reincarnation where you die and you come back. Jesus is not saying you you got to go back in your mom's womb and come out as another baby and live life again. He says, no, what needs to happen is you need to be remade new from head to toe, more importantly, in your heart. And the way that happens is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and it goes into your heart and it takes that old one and he gets rid of it. And he says, my spirit is now giving you a new heart. And that's what we hear in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new has come. See, the best part of our new hearts is this. That we've already established, and Jeremiah has pointed out numerous times, that you and I cannot do this on our own. You and I cannot go to the local convenience store. We can't go to Walmart. I can't order one on Amazon. I can't just cut myself open and plop that in and go, God, I'm good. Because we're going to fail and we're going to rebel and fight against God. And God says, I know that. So the best part of this is God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the cross for my stiff necked people. And I'm going to do what they can't do. I'm going to go through the pain of death without any any anesthesia, without any pain medication. I am going to suffer for you. 
I'm going to shed my blood so that way my blood can be used to perform a surgery of your heart. Because there needs to be that blood transfusion so we can get you a new heart. I'm going to do all of this so that way you can actually come to me and now say you're sorry and actually mean it. And so what does God say to us? He says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to ask you to get up on the table. I'm going to ask you to lay your life down. I'm going to ask you to put your trust into me. I'm going to ask you to let me do a surgery of your soul so I can give you a new heart. That's all I need you to do is just lie down on the table. And God says, I will take every care of everything else. And when he went to the cross and he died once and for all, he performed the final surgery of our souls. And because of that, we are forgiven and we are saved. Let's pray. Father, it seems so easy to say, I put my life in your hands. I trust you. I'll follow you. But Lord, we know the difficulty of that because that means we have to give up what we want. It means that we have to put aside our own selfish desires of greed, ambition, false worship, the convenience of how I like my life. But you knew that. So you said, I'm going to go to the cross. And I'm going to die so you can be able to say, I'm sorry. Lord, we are so blessed to have a God who has done all of the work. We are so blessed, Father, that you can see past our external shortcomings and our fake and hollow cries of forgiveness. Instead, Lord, you give us the ability to love you because of what you have done. So Father, I I pray that we heed the words of every prophet, that we would turn from our sins, that we would reform our ways, and we would love and obey you the way that you desire. And out of that obedience, Father, that there would be blessing not just for us, but it would be a blessing for a world that we would go forward into a community who has a heart of stone that has rejected you, And that we prophesy and we praise to you that there is a Holy Spirit that can save them the way that it has saved us. That is our heart and desire to glorify you always. Amen.